when you begin to think you got it or you don't understand it, which is usually my case, um, but it's a lifelong journey. It's a path you're on. And what we do in preaching for the most part, though there are exceptions, is that we sort of get you to thinking about how can I go deeper in Christ and how can I study the Word more and apply it. Don't ever forget that word, apply it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm just going to give you some random thoughts. Um, it's not things I haven't thought about. I've thought about them uh, incredibly. Um, but uh, I'd rather than preach a really, a really coherent sermon, I wouldn't want to disappoint anybody. I'd rather just sort of just share some things with you um, that you may or may not find valuable. If something in it hits you, um, then go, go to the Word of God and, and see what God might say to you. First thing I want to say to you, first thing or two, everything in your life belongs. There's not one thing in your life that doesn't belong there. Now, there may be things in your life you don't like. There may be things you're ashamed of. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, which I know as Reformed Presbyterians, I don't know if you know you're Presbyterian, so I won't let you in on that secret. Um, as Reformed folks, you, you believe in that. that you have, so if you believe in the sovereignty of God, how can anything be in your life that God hasn't allowed? Anything. And actually, that's a very important concept because God wants to use those very things that you and I are ashamed of to bring us closer to Him. That's the driving force in most situations. You can get closer to God in two ways. Uh, generally, if you're, uh, you're centered and whole, you pray, you read, you meditate, that's one way. But the way that it seems that most of us get closer to God and experience Him on a daily basis in our lives is through our suffering. Jesus learned obedience to the things which He suffered. Suffering is the way in which we move toward God. And, that, and, and what does that mean on a daily basis? It means that somehow from our mistakes, from the things that we're ashamed of, from those bad things in our life, God will use those very things to bring us to Him. Say what you want about the crucifixion, and you ought to say a lot. It was obviously the time in which God chose to redeem the world. There is no question. You trust Christ in your life as personal Savior. That's in the aorist tense in the Greek. It is done. It is done. But the crucifixion was also, a for Jesus, was very humiliating. It was a shameful thing. And God turned that shameful, heinous, terrible act in history into a badge of honor. And he'll do that for you. But, but I spend my life trying to hide those things, not deal with them, wonder how they got there, wonder what's going on, rather than sort of putting them into my life in a way that I can have God deal with them and bring me closer to him. Uh, if we have time, I, by the end of the sermon or this message or this talk, I'll, I'll share more about it. But there's nothing in your life by mistake. There's nothing there that, that doesn't belong, okay? The second thing I want to say is, say is that life is a journey, a path. We're on a journey. We're on a path. As someone has said, don't push the river. You know, that is, there's a sense in which we are moving down and away, and, we, and everybody is on that path and that journey. Don't ever forget that. You don't get it in one sermon. You don't get it in one book. You don't understand it. It's a lifelong it's a lifelong journey of trusting God and moving in Him, okay? Uh, all your Bible study and all your prayer and all your great 
theological understanding and biblical understanding that you have is not to get you anywhere. It is to prepare you for when God shows up to take you somewhere. And God will always grab your hand and put his arm on your shoulder and walk with you in the things of life. It's a, it's a don't push the river, it'll come. You know, sec- thirdly, I want to I suggest to you that there is a disconnect in our life. And this is very important. If you get this, you begin to get it. There's a disconnect in our life between what we know and what we live. Isn't that true? I mean, and, there's, and it's always there. There's always a, 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 a we're not living fully that which we know. But we've done something in Western Christianity that is a little disturbing. We have made intellectual knowledge the be-all and the end-all. If you know it, you got it. If you know it, you're there. And so we, we, we thirst for knowledge and thinking somehow if we just know it more, if we have a problem, if we just study more, if we have an issue, if we just, you know, get into it more, somehow that knowledge is what um, will get us where we need to go. Now, knowledge is important. There's no question about that. But there's a disconnect in my life between what I know and what I live. And so what am I doing wrong here? What am I missing? You know, because I, when I hear things like, my peace I leave you, not as the world leaves it, I wonder, am I finding peace? You know, do I believe that? Is my peace in the way the stock market goes? Is my peace in that my kids are doing well? You know, what's happening here? What am I missing? And where's the problem? The disconnect is this. I don't live it on a daily basis. Uh, and Now, that's a little, that's not quite the right way to say it. Let me say it like this. The Passion Week is a week in which Jesus experienced great joy, went into suffering, tremendous suffering, and, and then came into resurrection, Right? I think that's a pattern for you and I. When you take those things that you and I think don't belong and we submit them to Christ, it is painful. It is difficult. But what God begins to do in those things is he begins to root out of us ourself. He begins to root out that false self, which I'll say a word about in just a moment. He begins to root out that ego that has to be pleased and built up. And he begins to move us to be centered in him who we were always intended to be. Now, um, in, in Revelation, and Thomas studied Revelation greatly, great teacher on that, it says at some point we get a new name. And it says that that name was the name we were always intended to be. So there's a sense in which we live in a way that is not us. And it is all these things that we think don't belong that we submit to the Lord that, we, that connects us in our life that brings us deeper in him as we walk. So everything in your life is absolutely crucial to God taking you deeper in him, and he'll never condemn you for those things. And yet you and I will condemn ourselves. He met a woman caught in adultery. He did not commit, condemn her for that, but he basically worked with her and put her on a new path. He caught a woman at the well with five husbands. He didn't condemn her for that as we condemn ourselves for these things that we're so ashamed of. But he put her on a new path. He understood the narrative. He worked with that woman. The same with Zacchaeus. The same with Nicodemus. The same with the uh, blind people. Jesus always did that. 
He's not going to condemn you. Now, there might be some things when he says to you, you know, that was really stupid. But we can use it to bring you closer to him. But you and I, me especially, deny those things, put them aside. So I think that Christianity is about knowledge, knowing more. I'm not putting that down. But knowledge, like Paul uses it in in Colossians and other places, is knowledge gained from experience. But my ego demands more. My ego demands recognition, control. My ego demands that that I produce something that I can look back on and, and, and say, this is it. This is what's important. And Jesus said, that's a false illusion. Remember when the... Uh, when the folks went to Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? Well, that's a, you know, that's a pretty important question when you think about it. What is it we must do to do the works of God? Well, we, we witness, we, um, we help the poor, we uh, are there for our neighbor, we're our brother's keeper. We're all these things. We're doers. And, and they asked Jesus that question. He said, the work, believe in me. Is that enough for you? To just believe in him? Is my ego been dealt with enough that all I need is to believe in Jesus? Well, I, have, I want things for my kids. I, and there's nothing wrong with wanting things for your kids. I want this. I want, believe in me? When he had the opportunity to lay it on him? But he didn't do that. He said, rest in me. Trust in me. And that's the goal. I think there are many ways. I don't know if you would agree with this. That there are many ways that our ego really gets in the way. It demands recognition. It demands control. It demands that we are in the center of things. And part of what the movement of God is in our life is to destroy that ego. Our ego makes us fall in love with things that elevate us. Our ego makes us need things that elevate us. And we'll move to different things in order to satisfy that. Jesus wants you to fall in love with him. He wants you to fall so in love with him, as it says in Galatians, he's enough. He's enough. Now, all of this is part of a journey. All of this is part of a movement in our lives toward him. And you don't get there overnight, and you usually don't get there, though it can happen at some meeting when you just see the light, you know, You get there through long and determined uh, discipline of letting the river just go, and you go with it, and Jesus moves you. You know, when we do this ministry, I'm not saying anything about this other than we we do ministry, and Tom has been instrumental in this and actually started it with thousands and thousands of kids every summer and have for the last 30 years. But But our best work, is with those kids who came as middle schoolers and high schoolers. We're on what we call work crew and then summer staff. Our best work with those kids that over the long haul we were able to give our lives to. And, them, and somehow that made a difference in their lives. And we see great things. There's struggles, yeah. But Tom and I can tell you about Amy and we can tell you about different folks that God has really used in our own children as well as in others. Um, to, to be disciples. So it's a long obedience, as Peterson says, in the same direction. You will not get there overnight, and, and God never intended for us to do that. And God will use your story 
in, in getting you there. And, he wor- and you know, one of the things you have to see in Jesus, he did not work the same way with every person. He worked differently. He understood the situation. And yet, when I grew up, boy, you gotta, you got to do it this way, and it always works, and it's just it's a sign of my ins- insecurities. A couple of Bible verses I'll, I'll, I want to lead you to so you don't think this is all hogwash, which you might already think by now. But anyway, in Matthew 7, um, Jesus um, mentions a couple of things. Um, Matthew 7. Verse 13, you can enter God's kingdom through the narrow gate. I want you to look underneath the scripture now, not just the obvious that he's talking about. What is the narrow gate? The highway to hell is broad and is, and is a gate wide for many who choose that way. Now, obviously, it's a verse about salvation, you can't take it out, but a lot of things have double meanings, and this does too. Don't you know? If you're really honest, some of you and me, you can live a life of hell and know Jesus. Now, why is that? Could it be we've missed the narrow gate? But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a very few ever find it. Now, again, that's eternal life. I'm never going to not say that. But real life. What is real life to you here? A life of peace, a life of centeredness, a life of not having to prove yourself. Ever been around someone that's a controller? You're probably married to one if you're a woman. You know, that has to control everything and everybody, that their ego has to be fed and fed and fed. Or maybe that's even true of you that they find their identity and how well their kids do and their status in life and their income. They're swung by the stock market. It's up, you're up, it's down, you're down. And those are understandable things. But there's another way. There's a way in which, yeah, you want to make a difference in this world? Sure you do, and you work hard at it. And there's a way in which, you know, on the end, you, you really look at what you did and you don't think too much of it or too less of it. But it's that middle way that says, you know, I love the Lord and I'll do the best I can to love and serve Him. So I think those are, those, so narrow is the gate. And, and I, what if we miss it? What if we miss it and we studied the Bible every day? What if we miss it and we're knocking on doors? Now you say, well, I don't even know what it is. Well, welcome to the club. All right, Philippians. Philippians 3. I became righteous through faith in Christ, and there's no question about that. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Absolutely. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Now, what on earth could he be talking about? I want to experience the very power that raised Christ from the dead. In order to do that, he's got to die. You know, C.S. Lewis said, to die before you die is the greatest death of all. He called that spiritual death. But there can be resurrection from that. 
I want to suffer with him. Now get this. Sharing in his death. Now what is he talking about? Now I can read about the crucifixion from a distance and I can look at it, but he's talking about sharing in his death. I can give you an apologetic for why it happened, but he's talking about sharing in his death, making, getting rid of the disconnect between knowledge and experience so that one, may, one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I will experience it. I think he's talking about the way of suffering bringing us to resurrection. Remember I said everything belongs? Okay, there was an abortion. There was a divorce. There were things that you're ashamed of. There were things that you, you know that really just made it very, very hard. That, and, and, you know, it came one day, the, the Passion Week, things are great, things are going good. And then there's the betrayal, the denial, the abandonment. And Jesus is suffering as you have suffered and as you bring those things to him through prayer and meditation. And this takes time and energy and effort. As you bring those things, he begins to build into you what principles he's trying to get you to see so that it will strengthen you and move you away from the ego-centered life to the centered life in him. And then there's resurrection. It happens. You can hold your head up high. Say, yeah, I'm ashamed, I'm disappointed, but you know what? God used that to bring me closer to him. And the badge of dishonor, like the crucifixion, becomes the badge of honor. And then someone comes to you and says, you know what? You're just a religious fanatic. You're a good person. You don't understand what it's like. As someone said to me about my wife, they came to her and they said, Susan, you don't understand what it's like to try to take your life. She said, no, I don't understand what it's like to try to take your life once, but I can tell you what it's like to try to take your life three times. That badge of dishonor, and I'll, I'll end the sermon with this, became a, with, with the, explaining this to you, became a badge of honor that God can use anything and everything, that thing you're most ashamed of, that thing you want to deny, the thing you don't want there, and I understand that, to be the very thing that he uses to move you closer to him and becomes part of your narrative, which is so very important. So that one may, way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And then the Second Corinthians passage, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old is passed away. All things have become new. You know, I'm ready for the old to pass away. I'm ready for not having to control, not having to be in charge of everything, not having to make it happen. You know, I'm ready for that, are you? Because you get tired living that way, don't you? And if you're living with someone who's living that way, you get double tired. Just kind of wears you out. What do I need to do to fill this guy's ego up, you know? You know, and you see people who are just searching for meaning and purpose on Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon in colleges, go to football games. You know, the kids in the stadium, they don't even know. Most of them are drunk. They don't have any idea what's going on. It's the parents who think it matters. 
It matters that Missouri wins a game. In the SEC, y'all probably will never win a game. So just enjoy it, you know. I don't know where that came from, you know. I root for Georgia. Did you see what happened to them last night? Okay. So these are some things that I'm just sort of throwing out at you. I don't pretend that they're in a cogent sort of way, but just get them. It even makes sense to you. That all things belong, that you know I study the scripture to be ready when God comes, that there's a disconnect between what I know and what I live, and it pauses me not to be resting in Christ, but my ego just has to be fed and fed and fed. And that seems to be the way that many evangelical Christians live, you know, um, and it's a, it's a dangerous thing. Many of us come to life, and we look at life, and we don't necessarily do this the way I'm describing it, but in words, it's the only way you can talk about it. And we ask ourselves, what must we do to be successful? What does it take in the business you've chosen if you're a pastor in the church? And we create, though we don't really mean to do this, a false self. That is the self that is not the self that God created us to be. Now, we live moments in that self, so it's not completely rigid like this. But Madison Avenue and Wall Street and the organized church, they tell us how we ought to live. They tell us what we ought to be, and we go after that. And that false self has an ego that demands to be fed, and so we produce and we we consume and we produce, and people pat us on the back, and that false self is just moving. If there's a circle, we live on the outer edges of that circle, and the center of that circle is, in fact, being centered and resting in who we are and who God made us to be, then we live out there. And, And if we live on those outer edges long enough, pretty soon we don't need God We don't seem to be able to find God. We don't trust ourselves. One of the things about being in the center and knowing that God is in your life is, you know what? You can trust yourself. You can trust yourself to make a decision. People get all worried when you tell them that, and well, they should. But a centered person who's resting in Christ, who Christ is empowered with the Holy Spirit, yeah, he gets counsel. He gets all, or she gets counsel. But you can trust yourself to make a decision. So we live in that false self, and we have created it, and we have known this is the way to be successful, and the world has reinforced that. I've got to have this much of my 401K. I've got to have this much things that I've done for people. I need this much recognition. And sometimes if you don't get that, you really feel pretty bad about yourself. You feel like maybe your life has been wasted. And so you, you join clubs in order to, or you join movements in order to find identity and purpose, and it's all mixed up. And Jesus comes and he says, just rest in me. And you go, oh, my, you don't get it. You don't get it. Rest in you? What are you talking about? You got to produce. You consume. You produce. You know, I need recognition. I need to be built up. I need to be encouraged. And you, and you, and you think that's Christianity. And, you th- and I think the more I can do for him, the more he loves me. Let me let you know a secret. Jesus will never love you any more than he loves you right now. Never. You can win the whole city of St. Louis to Christ. He's not going to love you any more than he loves you right now. And what he wants for you is to be at peace with yourself, to rest in him. You say, well, you mean all he wants me to do is pray and all he wants me to do is just rest and, and trust? 
Maybe. What's so bad about that? Doing it the other way hadn't worked. You know? And so we have this disconnect. And so we take, so you say, okay, well, what's going on then? So as we move in this, as we become more aware of this, as we read the scripture and we see how Jesus dealt with people, we begin to see the, the pattern. You take all that knowledge you have, which is good and important, and you begin to apply it in your life. And you say, why do I, why do I find my security in my 401k? Okay. And God will begin to take you deeper into him and to know your security is in him. And he builds that into your life. And then one day you, you realize he is my hope. And you see, even as I say that up here, I'm going, you're a damn idiot, Chuck. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry I use profanity. But a lot of you do and just don't tell people. The point is this. <laughs> it's hard for me to get that. It's really hard for me to get that. You're coming to a table in a few minutes. You know what you're doing when you eat the bread and you drink the wine? You're entering into the very death, life, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And that is a continual thing. It's a pattern. You apply the things you've learned in your head to your life and those things become embedded into you, and all of a sudden there's a different criteria for what's important. You don't fall in love with yourself. You don't fall in love with all you've done. You don't fall in love with your accomplishments. You fall in love with Jesus. And there's only room in your heart for Jesus. And he's a gentle person. He'll back away until you, you, you go through this. Can you do good the other way? Sure you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Am I saying the organized church has never done any good because we got pastors who are, are, are living their false self? Of course not. You're, you're lucky to have a guy like Tom who's been broken, a guy like Tom who understands this, who lives this. It's not only understanding it. And if you ever get to the golf course during the week, talk to him. <laughs> and enjoy that, you know. Because most, a lot of churches don't have that. You know what makes a pastor a great pastor? And I can say this because this has been Tom's experience. He's been broken. He's been broken of the dreams of being a great pastor. And he just wants as best he can to follow God. In the hopes that if he follows God and casts a vision, some people might join it. And look what's happened. As you can see it. So, do we enter into that life of Christ? Do we believe that the suffering that we've gone through is the very things that God, those, those, those badges of dishonor are the very thing that God will use to bring a badge of honor in our life? Say what you want about the crucifixion, but from a human standpoint, it was complete and utter failure. And it became, and it is, our means to life itself. I've told this story before, and I'll be brief, but it's such a good illustration of, of uh, what I'm talking about. My wife, who some of you know, is a phenomenal woman. Cindy knows her, and she loves Cindy and their friends. And for years, she led women to Christ, and she um, was a student of the Word. I mean, a student of the Word. Every morning, up in the morning, 5 o'clock. I know that because she would wake me up. And, you know... Um, Studying the word and influencing our boys for Christ and influencing people around her. 
and she was struck down with a disease called bipolar, and it's a terrible disease, and it's a, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a brain disorder, and it's like any disease, like high blood pressure, or whatever. Take your medicine, and you're usually all right. But we didn't know that, and but it's a disease that's a mood disorder, so it begins you to you start thinking about yourself, and here's what she was thinking: God no longer loves me, and for someone whose whole life was God, to be struck down with this disease would mean only one thing is no purpose in living. And three times she tried to take her life. I mean, seriously tried to take her. And if it were not for miraculous interventions, which I don't have time to go into, she would no longer be with us today. Okay? What a badge of dishonor. Here she is, a spiritual giant, and women all over the world look to her and have called her for counseling. She tried to take her life and commit suicide. You know, you just think, well, how could God ever use that? How could God, I mean, wouldn't you want to just hide that? But she went through all that. But she, but she prayed a prayer once, and this was the prayer, Lord, whatever it takes for me to be yours, whatever it takes. And she said, God got the prayer out of my head and into my life. And until she, and so as she began, she got on a good drug called lithium that's very helpful in bipolar and she began to deal with the shame and embarrassment of what she'd put people through. And let me tell you, the Christian church reminded her often of what a disastrous failure she is. But she got through it. Praise the Lord. She went to work for hospice and just retired as a bereavement counselor with hospice. And God has usually, as God has used her story in such a miraculous way in the lives of others to what she can say to this day. And it's very hard to say it. It was worth it. And she never thought she'd be able to say that. And all, everything that God had put in her head, it began to get turned around and be used correctly. And all of a sudden, her badge of dishonor has become her badge of honor. She was speaking, we were speaking in Austin, and some, a woman came up to her and said, Susan, you, she doesn't talk about her suicides very much. Someone said, look, Susan, you know, you know, you don't know what it's really like to try to take your life. Yeah, you had certain bad people, but I've tried to take my life and you don't know what the shame of, of suicide is and how it affects people. She says, no, I don't really know one time, but I know three times. So God can begin to use your story as a way to heal others. And that's, I think, how God wants us to work within our sphere of influence, right where we live, right where we drive every day, right what we do. God is saying, be one who's at peace with me. Be one who's not trying to prove yourself. Be one who's not trying to feed that ego. And the only way you can be that is you bring those things to him that you think you desperately need and, need, and he will show you how to live a life that is different. You need this green tree. Green tree is a great accountability place for you to be able to submit some of these things. So unless the disconnect between our head and our life is solid, we will live paradoxical lives, confused about why we have no power, and we will say things like, this God thing doesn't really work. You know, it does work if you work it his way. Let's pray together.